Before we begin the episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Chin Up Goggles, the new generation of vision training. Its simplistic design eliminates downward vision, improving a player's spatial awareness, anticipation, skill acquisition and execution. The findings have been supported by scientific research in CIT, now MTU. Be sure to visit chinupgoggles.com for more. Welcome back to the Sideline Live podcast. You can follow us over on Twitter and Instagram at the Sideline Live. We'd love to hear from you. On episode 104, I'm delighted to be joined by Irish senior men's assistant head coach, former Davidson Wildcat and former professional basketball player Puff Summers. We discuss his journey from growing up in the United States, attending Division 1 Davidson College, pursuing professional contracts, Irish basketball and so much more. I hope you enjoy. Hey Puff, thanks a million for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. This is episode what? episode like 100 and something yeah see i've been waiting a long time for my invite so so thank you for having me no of course of course uh for anyone that doesn't know you there's probably more people in the non irish like they're not in the basketball community can you kind of give a quick uh 30 second intro to who you are and what you do um so puff summers is my name lawrence is my is my birth name but everybody calls me puff uh i am an american player well retired player now i've been here since 2007 I played at Davidson College, um, pre-Steph Curry. Uh, I have to I have to let people know that. But I'm now the assistant coach with the national team with Ireland, the Irish senior team, and run my own uh, basketball business development company called Why Not Me Hoops. And, um, you know, I'm just kind of a basketball guy. Any Anything basketball, I'm around. So, you know, it's going to be a, ba- a lot of basketball talk. So I apologize to all the non-basketball people out there, but, but hopefully they get something out of it anyway. I love the way to mention the pre-Steph Curry era. Do you think, can you describe the change in what it was like? Because you knew Davidson basketball before he was there to what it is now. I even saw like his, um, the kind of, the, they call it uh, three out of three, where they did his jersey retirement graduation ceremony and uh, Hall of Fame, I think they did it in yeah. Davidson for him the other day. Can you describe kind of the shift in, you know, even like it's become a kind of a worldwide brand really? Uh, I think the shift is more, yeah, the, the recognition that Davidson got. It wasn't, it's not so much been a shift of the way they do things or the, the way they prepare um, or just the, the player development stuff that we did before. You know, Steph kind of came and enhanced it, obviously. You know, he's going to enhance any program he goes to. But it's just the visibility that Davidson had after Steph just kind of went off the, off the scales. Um, you know, we were always a, a school that brought a lot of European players in. But, you know, we had a lot of international players even when I was there. I think I had I had a Finnish roommate. We had a guy from England, um, a guy from Turkey, Congo. Uh, right. You know, it was everywhere. Our team was very, very uh, – Michael Bree was there. He was a senior um, Irish point guard when I was a freshman. And then I graduated with Connor Grace, another Irish guy. So uh, we had Kenny Grant, who was from New York, but played on the Swedish national team. Um, so we had we had just had a plethora of international players there. So just learning how to play basketball and learning how to play kind of the international style of basketball was always a Davidson thing. And then you add a Steph Curry to that and kind of give him a green light to play within this European style um, based system. It's, you know, and then now Davidson is what it is and, and Steph is what he is, you know. Yeah, exactly. Can you describe kind of growing up for kind of and as you're describing it kind of compare it to what you see in Irish basketball kind of that high school level us in secondary school 
you know, how many times do you train in a day compared to kids in here? Um, so, so when I was growing up, it was every day, you know, high school practice, like even middle school practice. So middle school, um, just put in perspective is the equivalent of like first and second year, um, in, in primary school or in secondary school here. So yeah. middle school, seventh and eighth grade for us, it was, that was the first introduction to school basketball, really a school team. So we practice every day after school. And then we'd also play AAU during the summers, which is, I guess the closest equi- equivalent to what club basketball is here, but just a little bit different. So, you know, there were tournaments every weekend and there was practice every day for that as well. So, you know, it was it's, it's kind of a full-time thing once you choose to play basketball. Like, obviously, when you're in school, you'll play basketball for one um, semester or one season, and then you'll have another season, say football season or another season, baseball season, whatever it is. Um, so whatever sport you're doing for that time, you're doing it every day. And then for, for pretty serious basketball uh, programs in the high school level, they're, they're going year round. So even if you're in football season, you're still having basketball workouts in the morning or strength conditioning stuff in the mornings and, and just kind of staying on top of it there. It's just it's a full time thing. You know, it's just a, a bit of a different culture that uh, I think Ireland is, is shifting towards. You know, basketball players are still doing a lot of stuff in the offseason, even if they are they are playing Gaelic or or hurling or whatever else they're doing in the offseason, um, basketball is still on their mind, you know. So it is it is a bit of a shift happening in Ireland. You're speaking of hurling, how did you get uh, basketball into the hurling god of, or the, the school of hurling in <laughs> Ireland? Yeah, it's, uh, and, and St. Karen's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, hurling is the baby there. Um, and it's funny, and I've told this story a few times, but it's, I, I, they literally had me come in and do, six weeks of PE sessions with their first years. And, you know, I just do a lot of physical literacy stuff to start a little bit of ball hand, a little bit of shooting and a lot of playing and just trying to introduce the game to kids. And one of the days I just had uh, the tennis balls, we were just doing tennis ball, ball handling drills. And the, uh, I could just see all the PE teachers eyes just light up as soon as they were catching a tennis ball while they were dribbling a basketball. And they were like, Oh, this is very similar to the skills they need for hurling. And in my back of my head, I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm just trying to um, avoid I roll that, that hurling stuff. Yeah, because I'm not I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes, but I'm also not trying to equate it and be like, you know, the things that I'm teaching are going to help you in hurling. But, you know, they they were happy with it and, and the kids loved it. So that was kind of my end to uh, to St. Karen's. And I've been coaching first and second years there ever since. So it was pretty cool. Okay, very good. For you, Puff, why basketball? Why did you fall in love with the game? And can you remember that? Was there a specific moment where you kind of said, this is really for me? Or was it kind of like a long-term kind of process? Uh, that's a it's a hard question. I, I feel like it's a bit of a loaded question because I think, um, you know, you, you do something and you love it for so long and it becomes so much a part of your life that you can't really remember a time when it wasn't a part of your life. You know what I mean? So I, I know I started playing at a really young age. Uh and I, I always loved it, but I think I think the thing that pushed me over the edge was when I was ten, when I was when I was ten or eleven, my parents got divorced, and my dad moved out, and then it was kind of like, you know, this this young boy searching for like a meaning and and something to to make him feel a little bit better, and it, it started off it was just kind of going out and shooting, um, and basketball was always kind of something that my dad did with me and my brother. So it was just kind of going out and shooting and, and just kind of, you know, letting off some steam. And from there, it was kind of competing with yourself a little bit, seeing if you can make five in a row, six in a row. 
And, and then I just got hooked. Then I, you know, I started pretending that I was, that I was playing against my dad when I was making moves and like we used to when he was there. Um, and, and that kind of got me through some rough days, just, just imagining that he was still there with me. You know what I mean? And then from there, it just kind of became, um, and it's kind of a mentality that I, that I started having was just that whole, you know, you versus you mentality, just, just being there and competing against yourself and not caring what anybody else said or what else was going on. And, and, and from that, it just grew into this obsession with, with wanting to just be better than, than I was yesterday, you know? So, you know, it, it started from a, from, you know, a, a tragedy, I guess, a bit of a tragedy in my life. And then, you know, basketball kind of turned that tragedy around and it, and it became positive for me. Because mm-hmm. I, I think I saw that on, I think it was Orla O'Reilly's interview of Basketball Ireland. It was, she kind of wrote a kind of a bit of a par- mini paragraph on it and kind of said, you know, it's not about, it's, it's, she said, it's not about something else, but it's about you versus you. And that really hit home with me. And I know you have that actually printed on yeah. your camp t-shirts and it's yeah, kind of like yeah. you have that motto and you actually have a couple of other models that you use probably with players as well when you're trying to develop them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, it's kind of become a, uh, just a, just a thing that I do that every camp I put a new motto or, or quote on it. I'm kind of running out of quotes now. I have, I've had so many camps and t-shirts, but, uh, it's, you know, and I, I think a lot of coaches speak in cliche a lot of times when they're coaching or training players. Um, but just the things that I put on t-shirts are, are just kind of the ways that I try to live and, and try to teach the game. So, you know, one of them, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, you know, that's, that's a big one. And then, uh, you know, one, another one is like process driven. Everything is process driven, uh, which has become a bit of a cliche in sports as well. But it's, it's yeah, something. thanks to the 76ers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So we'll, you know, I'm sure we'll we'll probably touch base on that at, at some other point in this podcast when you ask me questions, talking about process and, and what the process is and what it looks like or whatever. But uh, you know, the things that I that I try to go go with over and over to the players that I work with is just that, like, you know, it's, it's not the destination ever. It's not about you know making this team or or you know getting playing time for this coach. It's about just loving the process of being in the gym and. And, and doing it over and over and over again and trying to challenge yourself with that, you know? So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, that's, that's, yeah. When you're speaking to players and you're giving them advice, um, is there anything that young players should, is there any advice that young players should ignore? Is there anything you've heard or is there anything that you kind of see kids doing that you're like, you know, avoid that. That's not, you know, where you need to go down. Is there anything that kind of comes to your mind when you hear that? Clout, social media, clout. That's what it is. Social media clout. Like it's, it's the worst thing in basketball that I've seen. Um, and, and I think we all adhere to it. Like sometimes when you, and, and I, and I feel like I don't, like, I don't get, like I'll post 15 times in a day and just not care. I don't care about the likes. I don't care about the views. I just post it cause I want to post it or I post it cause I want to teach something or I'll post it cause I think my daughter's cute and I want to share that with my people. You know what I mean? Like I don't give a, I don't give a damn about who, who sees or whatever, but I think there are also some posts that you look at and it's like, oh, this is really cool. Um, and then the, it doesn't get as much recognition as you thought it was going to get. And then in your head, it's just like, oh, man, maybe that wasn't cool. You start second guessing like the stuff that you love and the stuff that you post just because somebody else didn't recognize it. And, um, you know, I'm a grown man doing that still sometimes. So I know that, you know, imagine a 15 or 16 year old who who posts something or so and are so caught up on their image and what people are thinking of you so I, th- I think the more kids can get away from that and and do the things that they enjoy without you know thinking about what the backlash of of what somebody else thinks about it is or 
You know what I mean? Like the way the kids work out, we work out a certain way or we act a certain way around people because that's what makes people think that I'm cool. Um, you know, at some point, you know, we have to understand that that working hard and not giving a damn what people think is actually the cool thing. You know what I mean? I don't know when we went away from that being the cool thing, but, you know, I see it all the time and it's just, you know, uh, any any advice that I can try to give to young players, especially the young Irish players who are kind of put a, a bit on a pedestal because they they have set themselves apart from from the rest of their people in, in basketball is that it's still cool to work hard. It's still cool to be the person who who gets their ankles broken and gets up and keeps rocking. You know, it's still cool to go in there and try to dunk it, even if you miss it. Like, so, yeah, just getting away from the clout and 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 whatever thinking that people actually give a damn about you. You know what I mean? Like, because they don't like they might laugh at you for a second and then they'll go laugh at the next clickbait. You know, so, you know, so that's that's just that's that's the biggest thing that I see. And I'm trying to emphasize that with my daughter, like, you know, don't care so much what people are thinking about you and just rock in your own way, you know, dance dance like nobody's watching. It's a, it's a quote that, that Coach McKillop used to use all the time, dance like nobody's watching. And I try to kind of live like that and, and, you know, pass that along to the next generation of players, you know. I love that. I was going to ask you actually about Coach McKillop. Um, what was what was he like, obviously, at Davidson? How did you find him as a coach and kind of going into that system? And I can see you're only smiling there. Describe what it was like to be under him as a player. Nuts, man. Nuts. Nuts. Intense all the time. Like, there, so in college, it was like we had this strenuous kind of strength conditioning program that we had to do for the summer. And as a, a point guard and, and somebody always trying to win his favor over, I used to always make sure that I was like over, over prepared, you know, as far as, as conditioning wise. Um, and so I would do so much in the summertime to make sure I was prepared for the next season and it didn't matter. So whatever I did in the summertime, the first workout that I had with coach McKillop, like every year was like, I felt like I couldn't breathe and I didn't understand it. You know what I mean? Like I could have workouts with the other assistant coaches and I'd be fine. And then the first workout when he was in the gym, like within the first 10 minutes, I was just like, I haven't done anything this summer, you know? And I just think he, he just, he just has this aura about him that he always like understood what, what you were capable of. He understood how to get you to the next level. Um, and he always kind of made you feel uncomfortable and he knew how to get you to that, to that level of um, uncomfortableness. You know what I mean? So uh, that's, that's the best way that I can describe him. Like it was always like, uh, he makes me want to be or do or know that I have to get to a next level, you know? Um, and I don't know how he did it. You know, I don't know how he did it because he just always made me feel like I wasn't in shape or I wasn't hitting enough shots. Um, and not in a bad way, but in a way to be like, all right, I'm going to come here and do a little bit extra because I know i got to do that, you know? So rather than kind of making you, you know, feel bad about yourself that, you know, when you're puffing and puffing through the first session of the year, it's mm -hmm. kind of more inspiring you to say, geez, I better go work harder now. Yeah, every day. And I think, you know, that's the part of his genius is that he recruits kids who all feel this way. It was never taken as as a negative. It was always like, you know, I've, I've bought into this program and I know like what the success you've had before is. And obviously they, they see that even more now that Steph has been there and came through that program. But it's like I know what you build as players. I know how many pros that you've produced here. So uh, so if you're telling me to run through this wall for you, um, I'm going to run through this wall for you. And he just had an innate ability to, to make everybody feel that way. And, you know, I didn't play that much in college. I was like 11th, 12th man. Um, and I felt as much like that as, as a Steph Curry would have felt. You know what I mean? It was the same. Like he made us all feel the same. 
How did he do that out of interest? Kind of reflecting back, being a coach now, can you see the little intangibles that he did to make you feel like that? Yeah, it's just the little things like, uh, you know, when he sees you on campus, he, you know, he used to jog a lot. He'd be jogging all the time. But if he saw you in campus, he would stop his jog and he'd come over and talk to you. And um, he knew everybody's schedule. So he'd come and ask you, you know, how your economics class was this morning. Um, which you never wanted to be like, oh, I actually didn't go to that coach. You know what I mean? So it was all, it, like it was just a constant accountability with him all the time. But he was always asking questions, wanting to know about your life, how your mom was doing, how your brother and sister were doing in school. Um, it just made you feel a part of things, you know? Like if you, like, especially when it got to kind of February where you really weren't playing a lot of minutes and it was late in the season and we, we did, you don't really practice that much when it gets to that stage of the season. It's kind of like walk through stuff, go watch film, um, get some shots up because we have two or three games in a week, you know, but it's, you know, when, when guys were struggling who weren't getting minutes, um, he would always just say things and, and let you know that you were still important and, and that you felt important. Um, yeah. Like it's an art form that I, that I'm pretty good at, at, at relating to people. And I think because I was that bench guy and, and I was, I've been, in, I've been in situations where I've been like the man and, and been the main player on teams. I've, I have this different perspective that I know what everybody feels like at certain times of the season, you know? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, out of interest then, there's a kind of a saying that we coach, we have the same style of coaching when we're coaching. So when I'm coaching football, and apparently I coach it the way I've been coached. I don't mm-hmm. fully agree with that. Do you agree with that? Can you see similarities between what you and and maybe Coach McKillop or any sort of coach that you've had maybe in your professional career? Uh, I think as a young coach, like, yes, like you're always going to do what you the way you've been taught, because it's just it's kind of human nature, isn't it? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to do the three man weave because my under 10 coach did three man weave for an hour. Like, okay, fine. But then as you get older and you get a little bit more mature and you kind of have enough coaches where you can kind of suss through the bull, the BS, um, it gets to the stage where and now I know I'm 100 percent like this. I coach how I would I would have wanted to be coached. You know, like I do things that I would have wanted to do all the time in practice. Like I don't want to do busy work drills where you're just doing it for the sake of doing it. Like I want to play, you know, I want to play a whole lot. And, uh, you know, I want you to stop me and scream at me when I'm not playing, doing it the right way. But I don't want to learn that through a drill. I want to learn that through having somebody get up in me and, and, and seeing if I'm really good enough to do these things. You know what I mean? So um, so we played a lot at Davidson and we competed. Everything was competing. So I think if I took anything from him, it was that like every shooting drill, it was kind of competitive. A passing drill was competitive. If it was a dive on the loose dive on the floor for a loose ball drill, we were all trying to do it better than the person next to us. You know what I mean? So, um, and, and I'm a genuinely pretty competitive person. So, you know, if we're playing a game of Uno, I'm trying to kick your ass in that. And I want all my players to be that way as well. You know what I mean? Like I want to get to practice first because um, you know, Bobby was here first last practice. So I'm going to, you know, I make everything a competition and yeah. So there's certain things that you, you take from your coaches, but I think the older you get and the more mature you get in your coaching, you know, you can, you can suss through the stuff that you don't, you know, you don't need the fluff, you know. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that word accountability. I actually want to ask you about that. How do you, you probably, I don't know if teach is the right word, but promote that accountability. Let's say with an underage team, you've taken the under 14 girls in Kilkenny how do you promote, you know, taking that responsibility and not looking to kind of point the finger and be like, my coach didn't play me, you know, that's his problem and my whatever, just pointing, finding any other excuse but pointing the finger at yourself? 
Um, so I think, I think number one, you have to establish some non-negotiables, you know, there's, so there's like kind of off court or intangible non-negotiables and stuff like, you know, be on time or, uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever the case may be like, you know, so for my under 18 girls that I coach at Kilkenny now, I have recorded a warm up for them. So I've sent it to all the parents who've given it to the kids. So, you know, if there's a session on before them, they have five or 10 minutes to come in and get their dynamic warm up done. So when that practice is done and we're starting practice, like they're ready to go, like it's, it's full throttle for the hour and a half that we have, you know, so that's just giving them some personal accountability. And if they're not ready and if you get there late and if you come in and want to talk instead of that, then when I start to rock and you know what I mean? Like you, you are not ready to, to play. Um, then that's on you. That has nothing to do with me. And then as far as like accountability, like on the court intangibles for me, it would be like certain things, like once you start to cut, you know, finish your cut at all times. If you don't do that, right, you didn't do your job in my head, like I can't trust you. And if you continue to do these intangibles or these these principles that we talk about all the time, if you do it over and over, like you're going to give yourself a chance to play, you know. And then, you know, obviously as, as an underage coach, especially here in Ireland, it's like or everywhere, you're always every parent thinks their kid is the absolute gem of the sport. You know what I mean? Like. Um, except for coaches who who think their kids never do enough, which is what I'm slowly learning, you know. Uh, but so it's like if you do these things and and you feel like I'm not giving you a fair shot and your parent comes to me, like you better believe that the next game I'm going to throw you in the fire. Like I'm going to throw you right there in the fire. And if, and if you don't succeed in that, I'm just going to look up in the stands at your parent and be like, yo, dang, isn't this what you wanted? You know, so it's like, I'm not going to play anybody and put them in a position to fail. But if you want to bitch at me and say, you know, they deserve this, they deserve this. Like, all right, here's your opportunity to go, you know? And what I learned in college when I was young was that I used to bitch so much about like, man, coach McKillop ain't playing me, he ain't playing me, he ain't playing me. And you do that so much that when you do actually get your opportunity, like you're not prepared for it because all you've been doing is wasting time bitching about why you're not playing. You know what I mean? So it's like, and I've had this so much with, with people going away with Irish teams is that, you know, I keep telling them, um, you know, just wait your turn, be ready, be prepared, be engaged in the game. Because like, if you're only playing two minutes a game, but for whatever reason you get thrown out there in the first quarter, if all you're doing is being sad about not playing for the first five games, guess what happens in that six game when you get your opportunity, you're going to look pretty shitty. And then the coach is going to be like, see, that's why I didn't play you in the first place. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, so I, I just tell the kids, like, your opportunity is going to come. And and sometimes it doesn't come. And that's just the nature of sports. You know, like I didn't play much at all in my four years at Davidson. But then I was playing overseas. I played, you know, my my first year abroad was in England. And I think my first game I had like 21 points and like eight assists. And after not playing much for the four years in, in college, you know, I'm feeling really, really good. Only for my coach to come over to me and say, like, look, we need more from you. And I'm like, damn, bro, I had 21 and eight. Like, <laughs> I haven't played in four years. I'm feeling pretty good. So it's like, you know, you just got to constantly kind of, especially when you're not playing or you feel like you're being slighted, you just got to, I don't know, it's, I, I think it's a it's a way of, of developing mental toughness and just feeling like you're always enough. Like, it's the same thing, you versus you, you know? Like, even if this coach doesn't feel like I'm good enough to play for him or he doesn't want me to play for him right now. Like I, I feel like the things that I'm doing and preparing myself are, are worth it. And I'm going to stick at it. You know what I mean? Like I trust myself more than I trust anybody else in the whole world. Yeah. And, if and that's, I, sorry. you know, and yeah, if, if I constantly feel that way, 
then uh, it becomes way bigger than basketball. Like I'm, I'm way bigger commodity than just one of 12 players on a basketball team, you know? Yeah, I love that. And that's something that I think we all experience. I've experienced as a player is, well, one coach might not like me and I didn't play. And then another mm-hmm. coach is like, well, I'm going to give you an opportunity here. But it's kind of like you are mentioning there with those Irish teams and kind of, you know, it's kind of having that, I kind of like call it the tunnel vision that, yes, I might not be getting, even like let's say this season, I don't get played. Well, I still have to have that mental toughness to go out and train as hard because next year I might get the chance. The coach mm-hmm. might call you and say, look, Orla or Puff, I'm going to give you 20 minutes a game now because we've had maybe a major injury or maybe, you know, in you get into foul trouble. You never know what's going to happen. So you have to mm-hmm. kind of, what's that saying? Like, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Cliche, yeah. but, yeah, but yeah, kind yeah. of some yeah. applies a lot in sport because it's very unpredictable. Like, Hey, there's something special about all those cliches that get passed around. Like, I hate that they always get passed around so much, but it's like, you know, like like the, the the mentality that I've grown over the years that that's grown in me is that like, you cannot break me. Like whatever you say to me, whatever the minute you take away, like you can't, like, I don't play this game and I don't love this game for you. You know what I mean? Like I do this because I love it and it's something that's, that it's in me. And like I said, it was something that, that got me out of a really, really tough time when I was a kid. So I do this for that. I do this because of the process or the love of, of being in the gym on the court. You know what I mean? So like, the the teams that I don't play for and I don't play enough like teams that maybe I don't feel like I play enough like you still you cannot break me you know like I'm still gonna be smiling I'm still gonna come into practice and I'm still gonna try to get up in somebody's ass I'm still gonna have like very very high energy every day um and eventually you're gonna break before I do like you're gonna have to play me you're gonna have to because I'm gonna keep coming at you you know what I mean unless you fire me which I've been fired a lot in my professional career and it's more that I'm fired because I make coaches feel uncomfortable. Like I, I make you feel uncomfortable by not playing. Me. You know what I mean? So what do coaches do? I'm fire his ass. Like pray too much. It's too much positive energy. Get out of here. You know? Uh, can you actually give us a bit of an insight into kind of navigating that professional career? I kind of spoke about with a, with John, with um, Jordan Blount, John Carroll and Sean Flood and a couple of other people. But for you navigating a professional career, you obviously started in England. You're now residing in Ireland you played for, for a couple of clubs here what's that journey like coming out of college and kind of you've mentioned even getting fired from teams describe what it's actually like as a pro um you know what it's like actually behind the camera and away from the games and just navigating that whole journey um okay so like I've, I've had a long pro career a lot of heartbreak and a lot of really positive things and I met a lot of great people but I so I started off like after Davidson I played uh for a couple of teams in the ABA which uh, it's like a, it's kind of a minor league in the States. Um, so I, I had a couple tryouts with G League teams. It was the D League back then. That's how old I am. It's the D League. <laughs> it was called a developmental league back then. But I had a couple tryouts with, with them. And, you know, it just didn't really make sense because unless you are like very, very high level and playing a lot, like I knew I didn't have a shot to play in NBA. Um, so after that year, I went and I played for a team called Kings Lynn and uh, which was in the EBL one in England. Um, so I was with USA select, which is a kind of a traveling exposure team. And, you know, as soon as we got off the flight to go and play a bunch of BBL teams, um, you know, the guy who ran it, Sean Kilmartin got a call and said they needed a point guard. I made a pretty positive impression on him. So he sent me, he just put me on a plant on a train right when we, we landed in Gatwick. And I was off to this, you know, crazy place in, in Norfolk, in Suffolk, in, uh, in, in, in Kings Lynn, this little town 
so played there for a year. And then I came to Ireland and played for Balna. Um, and then after that, I went to – now, this is taking me down memory lane now. So I went to Spain for a little while and played with Jermaine Turner. I think I was over there for a few weeks. They didn't have any uh, – they didn't have any roster spots open, so I came back to Ireland. Um, then I played in Moycullen in 2009, 2010, their first Super League year. Um, I went to Portugal after that. Um, and I played for about maybe two months in Portugal in the top league. And then I got fired from there because they kind of ran out of money. So got rid of all their pros. Um, came back here then. And where did I play? I played a few games for Belfast Star with Adrian Fulton um, while they were waiting for their American to come in. Uh, and by this stage, like Ireland kind of knew me. So I feel like I was kind of becoming a mainstay. So then I signed the next year for UL with Mark Keenan. Um, this was Jason's first year there. So I was really excited about that. Um, so we, we played the first few preseason games. We won pretty handily. And then Mark kind of came to me and was like, you know, I think I need more of a scoring guard. So he fired me. Um, and this was literally, this was in 2011. It was about three weeks before my wedding. Um, and I think this was this was one of the last times I, I ever kind of cried over basketball was was in 2011. Like I was getting married. My mom was coming over. I thought she was going to get to see my first game with UL. Um, and yeah, he fired me. So I, I went through that. And then uh, then I ended up playing with Dublin Thunder in National League that year. And we won the National League Cup. Um, this was before they had any rules about Americans playing in National League. So we had like eight Americans that year. Like we're beating teams by like. 100 points or something stupid you know so from there I ended up going to Australia for for a year for a season came back and played with uh came back and played with Colester and Jermaine Turner um and we can talk a little bit about that later that was a crazy year got fired um for Michael Bonaparte you know who ended up being my Temple Oak teammate um so they fired me and brought Boney in and then I played three years National League with Kilkenny. And then I've been the last six years with Moycullen. Or right. uh, Temple Oak, sorry, with Temple Oak. Yeah. And when you describe kind of when we were just speaking about that mentality <clears throat> of kind of that tunnel vision and, you know, staying ready. When you go through so many ups and downs, like how, like it's easy for me to say it on the podcast mm-hmm. when I'm recording in my bedroom. But when you're in this, you know, when you're in Portugal, you're getting fired. When you're in the UL, getting fired, with, you know, you're. Uh, head coach of the Irish national team like describe what what that is like and how you build that resilience um I mean like the sad like you you can't run away from the sadness of like you can't run away from the hurt you know and I think that's that's what some people do they try to pretend that like you know I'm I'm so solid that I can't be hurt and it doesn't hurt me when these these bad things happen to me it's like no I didn't run away from that like I accepted it and I accepted it as a part of you know, this is the job. This is the life that I'm trying to live. There's people literally trying to bounce a ball to 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 feed their families. You know what I mean? Like, that's a part of it. And, um, like, especially when you start playing high-level basketball, it's like everybody is replaceable. And then, you know, the more you start to realize that in basketball, then you realize that, you know, that's kind of the case in everything. Like, in whatever job you have or whatever relationship you're in, if, if you don't work at it and, and, and hold serve and, and grow with that, then – somebody is is waiting there and is going to replace you you know what i mean so um for those specific jobs that i that i got fired on i just felt like you know the coach or the leader or whoever it is just felt like they needed somebody else or something else to get them over the 
the edge and that's fine. And I, I took that in. Um, like, did it build a bigger chip on my shoulder? Like, yes, because I'm competitive and, you know, like I still feel like I'm the best point guard on the whole planet and I'm almost 40 years old. And it's just the mentality I'm always going to keep. And it's the mentality I try to, you know, even if you're the worst kid on your team, I want kids to have that mentality that like I'll bust your ass. Like you're averaging 20 points a game. I'm getting 20 seconds a game. I'll still bust your ass. You know what I mean? And uh, it just builds a resolve. And and some people, I don't, I don't think it's, it's something that's uh, innate in, in people like some, like either you have it or you don't. I think it's something that's developed over time. And I think if you have a circle of people who are just yes men and, and tell you that you're great when you're not, then you're not going to build that. You know, if you have people that say, well, he should have fired your ass because, you know, you don't never go left. Well, then it's like, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to go in the gym and I'm going to work on my left. You know what I mean? So I had a great circle. My family has been great. My friends that I have here, um, that my family that I've built here in Ireland are great. Um, and and they've kept me, kept me grounded and they've kept me believing that the the thing that I was chasing, you know, this hoop dream is is worth chasing, you know, so. Um, yeah, so build your build your circle and, and put people around you that are going to tell you when you're actually not great. And then also have people around you that are also going to celebrate you for the things that you do do well, you know. Mm-hmm. Can you describe um, when you started off with Ballina to last season, kind of coming into this season, what's what's been the biggest evolution of Irish basketball, whether it's at Super League, National League level or underage or the national teams? Yeah. Uh, so like when I first came here, like like number one, I didn't even know that they had a national team. You know, I think in, in 2008 was the last kind of games where, where people were coming into the arena and, and all of that. And I didn't even know what happened. Like I was in the country. I was one of the Americans. I was one of the best players in the country. And I had zero idea that they had this national team, you know? So number one, obviously like with social media and everything, like the coverage is obviously better. And now, you know, every 12 or 13 year old kid knows who Sean Flood is and who Jordan Brown is and who like Lorcan Murphy and all these guys are, you know what I mean? So that's number one is the coverage. Like basketball is, is a little bit bigger deal than it was then. Um, but as far as the actual basketball stuff, like the skill level of, of Irish players is, is crazy, man. It's crazy. I think that's just what the evolution of the game in general, um, you know, everybody talks about comparing eras like, like Michael Jordan versus LeBron James's era and all this. And it's like, you can't, you can't not say that the skill level hasn't gotten better over the course of the different eras of basketball. And I think that's the case with, with Irish basketball as well. And I'm not necessarily saying that the people now are better than 30 or 40 years ago, but I'm saying that the skill level is better, you know? So I've seen that as a player. So I can, I can teach things to a 14 year old now that I probably would have taught an under twenties player when I first came here, if that makes sense, you know, like they're learning more things faster. You know, like my daughter, for example, is 13 and she knows more options off a ball screen literally than I knew coming out of college. And she's 13 years old. No, and it's not I don't say that to big her up, because if anybody has seen me coach her, I do not big her up very often. But she knows more than I knew now. She knows more now than I knew when I was 21, 22 years old, for sure. Wow. Can you, when did you start getting involved with Irish teams? I know you're with um, Sean Floyd, but an underage team. Was it under 18? Yeah, under 18. I think that was in like 2014, maybe 2013, 2014. Um, so it started off that uh, Patty Lyons is like my guy. Like he's like, like Patty Lyons, like I know he's been on the podcast before, 
And this kid, when I played at Moy Cullen in that 2009, 2010 season, like this guy, I used to go to the gym in Kingfisher every day. And he was like a little gnat. He would just like show up. He would like be there. It would be like during school times. I'd be like, like, what are, you, what are you doing here? And he'd be like, can I work out with you? Can I can I rebound for you? Can I do this? And he just used to follow me around. And he used to do any drill I would show him. He would, like, master it. And then he'd come back and ask me for another one, you know? So I was really, really close with Patty, really close uh, early on. And he was playing with the under-16 Irish team, that Dave Baker coach. Um, so, like I said, back when I first was in Ireland, I didn't know much about the national teams at all. But because I knew Patty and Dylan Costello and Stephen O'Brien, who were the three more Cullen guys on that team, um, I kind of like kind of got to know Dave and he let me come in and, and help out with a few sessions. And I was like, yo, this shit is fun. Like, you know what I mean? It's like the best players in Ireland all in one space. And, and I get to work with them like this is cool. So. Uh, so then Sean Flood was another Nat um, who used to, you know, ask me for drills and, and just was a gym rat. So, you know, I was kind of close with him and I, I was kind of following his progression. And it, I kind of sent an email. I actually sent an email to Basketball Ireland saying can I have the coaches emails the all the national team coaches email addresses because I want to help them with individual workouts for their players you know set up individual workouts for like say if there's six Dublin players I go work them out or if there's six Galway lads I go there and work them out and Tom O'Malley got wind of that email and he said don't be sending that out just come be my assistant with Sean Floods with that under under 18 team and, you know, just young me as a coach, I still I was still just a player. I wasn't even a coach. And I was like, OK. And, uh, you know, that just started it. And then, you know, the the Irish senior team came back and Colin O'Reilly uh, touted me as a guy that helped people get better. And from there, I was his assistant for how many every years. And, and now I'm just in it now. Mm. Like before you know it, you're just in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like an addiction nearly. Uh, yeah basketball like it really is can you yeah. describe um uh, you mentioned there kind of that that area idea what you had where you you take you know six Dublin players say or four Galway mm-hmm. people and work them out together um there's always been this big debate about like having an official academy what's your opinion on it do we need it would an area kind of they've kind of started those regional um those regional academies is that a better way of doing it what's your opinion on it it is better because you get more more kids um, I think like we're slowly trying to get on the same page and, and teach all the academy kids the same thing. Um, so like m- for me, it's like I know I did the Kilkenny one a few years ago. Uh, the first year they did it, actually, I did the Kilkenny under 15 one. This is before they were it was by your region. It was just the, the smaller areas for under 15. And uh, I remember I did it. I was doing so much on my own. And it was like I had 30 boys. And in one session, and then I'd have 30 girls and we had to get 50 hours done with them, like in season, you know? So I just like, it was, it was a lot. Um, and I was blessed with the the female one that year. Cause we had like Lucy Coogan, uh, Sarah Hickey, um, who else? And Caitlin Glockner was in that. And it was like all of these really, really, really high level girls who were in it. Like all the Wildcats who kind of won national cups now and won schools finals. And then all my Kilkenny stars who kind of, made under 17 development Irish teams and that, and were like kind of knocking on the door with Irish teams. So I was really lucky in that I had a lot of high level people, but like my idea was that if you get your top eight or 10 in the area and you just constantly have them working out together and competing against each other, it's like, once they go to Irish practice, you're not leveling up to go to Irish practice. That's just the way you are. You know what I mean? Um, So yeah, I think the academies are definitely on the right track. But I do think it's hard for the people who are running the academy sessions 
because there's just so many kids in there to make sure that you're really increasing the level, you know, like you're increasing knowledge, which is a start. But at, at some level, at, at some stage, it's going to be we got to increase the level of, of player, you know. OK, when you're working with a player, Puff, how do you measure success with, let's say, for example, we'll take Lucy Coogan. Mm-hmm. How do you measure success of working with Lucy? Obviously, she's gone to the States, but for you as a coach and for her skills trainer, what would you like? How did you measure your her, your success of working with her? Um, The fact that she kept coming back. Like, that was it. Like, that was it. It was like we, you know, we'd have drills that we do every day or shooting drills every day. And we're trying to obviously beat that score. But it's not like when you get to a certain score, it's like, okay, Lucy, you're a good shooter now. Like, nah, do that shit tomorrow. You know what I mean? And I think, like, the big thing with with people that come to me to work out is just, like, they feel like if they come to me one time, like, I'm going to transform their game. I'm not. Like, I'm not doing anything different that somebody else wouldn't do with them. It's just, uh, like, the reason that Lucy has had success was that she bought into – the the idea of, of of perfecting her craft you know what i mean like and i don't i don't judge success on anything else than that you worked at it over and over and over and over again you know and then everybody says that like hard work pays off like oh i, I hate that saying so much like it's true it's true but like hard work is just that's just a part of it that's just a natural part of doing something you love like you're going to work really really hard at it you know and the more you do it eventually something is going to go right your way. Um, and for me, it was like, well, if Lucy hadn't got the scholarship or if she hadn't made these Irish teams or if she hadn't been one of the best players on these Irish teams, does that mean she, that the work she did was not a success or the stuff we did wasn't a success? I'm like, no, it doesn't mean that. It just means that maybe she didn't get the recognition for the work she put in, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's kind of a slippery slope talking about how do you judge success as a trainer? Like, you can't. It's just like you know, over the course of, of days and weeks and months and years, you just start to see, you know, like, like there's a quote, what is it? Like uh, somebody became a success overnight, you know, overnight success. It took years to become an overnight success or something like oh, that. Oh yeah. Uh, it took me, it was like, I think it was messy. He was like, Oh, it took me 10 years to be an overnight success. Yeah. Or something yeah, like yeah, that. That's yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. You know what I mean? Cause everybody, like once you start to, showcase on a national platform or international platform everybody's like oh where the hell is she come from yeah but nobody saw and, and drew hanlon has it like unseen hours is, is kind of what his stuff is called it's yeah. like people like you know there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes so I, I don't judge it by like the the recognition or the accolades i judge it by like are you coming back on tuesday <laughs> like that's it that's that's a success for me yeah, and they, we'll take Lucy as the example, but you can go back on your Instagram page and if people listening, you know, if there's mm-hmm. young players listening, Lucy wasn't an overnight success. You can go back to, um, you must have been 2014, 2015 when you started working with her. Um, what is she? Maybe she, a little later. Yeah, it was a long time. I remember the first time I ever met her mom. Um, It was, we had a cup final. I was playing for Kilkenny National League and we got to the cup final and she had brought her girls up there and we were playing Titans. We lost in overtime this game. But there was like a loose ball that I dove to get. And I ended up having to jump onto the stands like where everybody was. So they all moved out of the way. And I was like, let's go like to the crowd. And everybody was just hyped up. And I think Edna saw that. Her mom saw that and was like, yo, I got I got to mess with this guy. I'm going to get this guy to work my girl. She didn't know I was a skills trainer or anything like she I remember she she got in touch with me. She found me. And the next day she was like, will you start working uh, my girls out? And I was like, "Uh, all right. And then it was like she actually had to beat Lucy into coming. 
because Lucy was a her. Lucy was a Kamobi player. Like she. Oh, okay. I didn't notice. Yeah, yeah. She used to wear like the Kilkenny jersey to our trainers. I'd be like, "Yo, come on, bro. Like, what are you? What are you doing?" So she had to like beat her to the first couple, and uh, from there it was like, you know, she was like 11 years old, and I usually don't even take kids kind of 11, 10 or 11 years old because I think it's too young. Um, and then she started coming every Friday, every Friday, every Friday, and then it became like. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Then it was like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then it was just like an everyday thing. So she was just, she just differentiated herself because she just wanted to be there all the time, you know? Puff, you mentioned a lot of players you've, you've worked with, um, including, they're all Irish internationals, obviously, but um, even including players you've played with, what are the attributes of successful players? Is there any sort of common themes you've noticed over the years where you can kind of pinpoint a pattern between players? Um, common attributes. Um, so I think like the, the really successful players that I've had, like they are really like really attentive to detail, you know? So like if, if we're working on a particular set of footwork, um, the ones that start asking me questions and are saying that they feel weird going left as opposed to when they're going right doing this particular set of footwork and, and are really taking their time. And then like, say if we're in a camp setting or something like that, you'll see these kids, these particular kids go into the back of the line. And when they're like waiting on their turn or whatever, they're like working on the footwork or working on the stuff while they're waiting. Like those, those sponges, like those are the ones that I kind of look at. Like even when they're like 12 and 13 and I'm like, yo, they got something, they got something, you know? And then like, like Sean flood is like the ultimate, like he's like, like working Sean flood out is like, you got You have to have a thesis and the stuff that you're teaching them. Cause he wants to know every nook and cranny about why you're doing it, how you're doing it. You know, you do it first and let me see you do it. Um, like, why does it feel this way, this way? Like he's asking questions all the time. So, you know, I think that's the the biggest, the biggest attribute that that's, you know, that I see in a lot of players is that they are, they're just very, um, they, they want to know it all. You know what I mean? They want to know why they're doing stuff all the time. Yeah, for sure. It's like um I saw that video from Kobe I think when it was his um the Mamba Day they he had a I don't know it was I think from a talker but he was like you have to be patient in learning the details but you have to be impatient to want to get better so it's like yes. being patient yeah. in the in the middle of the practice but like then as soon as you go home you're you're thinking about it and you're practicing and you're back the next yes. day and it's kind of the patient but impatient if that makes mm-hmm. sense yeah yeah and it's also like those those really successful players like they think and watch basketball a lot. You know I mean? Like I never understood how like some players just don't watch any basketball, but I'm like, you want to be a great player? Like, yeah. I'm like, what? You know? So it's like, like the players that, that are just constantly like, and not highlights like actual games and you're not watching it to be a fan. Like there's a way of learning. Like if, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, if I start to watch a particular player, like I'm watching everything he does. Like I want to know like if he's high-fiving people when he goes to the bench I want to know what his, what his reaction is when he gets called for a bad foul. Like once kids start watching things like that and, and the good kids, the good, the really good players are the ones that, you know, when they're watching these Irish games, their, their peers playing, they're really like, you know, Hey, Harry Scully is doing this and this and this, you know, just to, to use Harry as an example, because he was a, a great under 16 player for us this year, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of skills and you being a skills trainer, what is the most underrated skill in the game at the moment? Uh, swinging the ball from the top, for sure. Like, which is not even, like, anybody can do it, but, like, literally getting the ball at the top of the key and whipping it to the other side and making the defense shift. And, like, everybody possesses that. 
Like everybody possesses the ability to do this. And especially in under, like, so, so what are we trying to build as players? We're trying to build dynamic offensive players, you know, all the time. All right. How can I be a more dynamic offensive player? I can make the defense move faster. So I catch it with a, with a head start. You know what I mean? So just being able to, to literally catch the ball, swing it side to side, make this defense shift over to them and now give the person on the wing a chance to attack one-on-one with an advantage. It's like the most underutilized skill in basketball. And this is not an underage thing. This is like senior men's. This is NBA. This is EuroLeague. This is EuroBasket. I was at EuroBasket yesterday. Like all of the big, all of the post players can come down. And once they catch it, like they make a decision on the spot, you know? And so especially the young post players that I'm teaching with, I'm trying to teach them to, to make a decision a little bit quicker. Like I don't care if you catch and shoot it and jack it up as long as you do it with the, you know, if, if you do it with all your heart, like you really believe in this, this was the best decision for my team, you know? So catch and make a quick decision is, is yeah, most underutilized skill for sure. Okay, interesting. Uh, speaking of European Championships, I just want to touch on the 2021. I don't know if they still call it the 2020 uh, f- uh, Championships for Small Countries. Obviously, Ireland won that. And I spoke to the guys and they said that kind of going into it, that was the aim was to win and to kind of put this benchmark down that, you know, we're too good to be in this competition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's that, you know, that was kind of uh, an underlying theme that was never talked about within our camp. You know, like we knew that we needed to win that to progress, to show basketball Ireland that like we want to be playing with the big boys, you know, like and not saying that like not belittling the the small countries at all. But it's like, you know, I want to play against Spain and I want to play like I want to play against all of them. I want to play against Serbia. Like that was our that was that was in our heads, you know, so uh I went in, we went into that with the most professional mindset. And as a coaching staff, it was like, you know, we're going to prepare these games as if we are in like the Olympics or something. So it was teams that we knew we were going to beat by 40 points that I was probably doing the most preparation for as far as the, uh, the scouting reports. You know what I mean? Like even the final uh, Malta was missing or the, fi- the last game that, that got us the championship. Malta was missing maybe two of their best players. And I was talking about their seventh and eighth man as if they were like Kyrie Irving or something, knowing that we were more talented than them, but just wanting to put it in our guys' heads that like we have to perform at every second and and leave no stone unturned to make sure we win this. And that, you know, we put it in our federation's head that we're ready for the next step, you know. Do you think it was also getting ready for, like, obviously there was no decision made at that point for Eurobasket, but when you're talking about, you know, that level of preparation you went to and being switched mm-hmm. on the entire time, even when you're 40 points up, that's what's yeah. going to, you're going to need to do when you get to the Eurobasket yep. pre-qualifiers. Yeah, 100%. And it, it rolled right into it. So then we had a basis or, a, or like, you know, seven or eight players who kind of continued and, and played in every window with us for the Eurobasket qualifiers, pre-qualifiers. And uh, they were all, we were all on the same page all the time. Like they knew exactly how we used to, to do the video stuff. So once we got into the qualifiers, even though we hadn't been together and we were only together for that three days before we played Cyprus, um, you know, we were able to click and, 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 and get on the same page very, very quickly. You know, like they knew exactly what I was looking for when I'm, when I'm trying to scout other opponents. Um, they knew like how I wrote scouting reports and, and the things that I was trying to take away from teams as, as being one of the guys in charge of, uh, of, of trying to take away strengths for the, for the opposing team. So yeah, it was, you know, it, it was, it was like our first window of the, of the Eurobasket qualifiers was the small countries, you know. Mm-hmm. What did you learn from the pre-qualifiers so far? Obviously there's still a, um, a 
qualifying tournament next uh, summer. But what did mm-hmm. you learn from the, the previous windows that you've gone through? What were the biggest takeaways for you maybe as a coach? Um, It's just the, uh, the misdirection stuff that so many European teams do. Like it's not so much they have like 15 sets that they're running as more like the actions that, that they're running. So everybody is getting into some kind of ball screen action. Um, but it's just the different ways they get into that ball screen. And, and, you know, so instead of, so I'm a, I'm a big video guy. So everything I'm doing is I'm trying to look at a, uh, a team, all the sets that they run and I'm trying to take these things away and I'm trying to call them out. Like you'll see me during the games, I'm screaming out what's, what's coming because I'm so adamant about knowing exactly what a coach is thinking or what a team is thinking and trying to do. But when you get to this level, it's like um, they don't care that you know what they're going to (laughs) do. Like they know that you know what they're going to do. So now they're doing misdirection stuff and they're trying to mask when and where and what positions they're getting into this ball screen stuff. And then so it's like as a team, like with so much, with so little preparation because we don't get to spend so much time together, can we still be on the same page and be able to – to to ride out our our defensive schemes even when they're happening at points that we don't know or didn't expect for them to happen at you know so very easy to say we're double teaming a ball screen it's very easy if a team just comes down to the wing sets a basic ball screen very easy to double that you know but when you come off a flare screen into a double staggered into a ball screen going towards the baseline side like after all those actions have happened and you have to think and talk and get through all that. Now it's very, very hard to double team that ball screen and stay on the same page, you know? So, uh, so that's the biggest, you know, that's the biggest takeaway. And then offensively for us, can we be dynamic enough to, uh, you know, to, to start masking the, like we all knew that we had three or four players who were kind of our main guns offensively. And, and when teams start shutting that down, can we mask the ways that we're trying to get those guys open and, and get them into their spots, you know? So, yeah, it was, it was definitely a learning curve for, for our players, but I think more so for for me, Mark, and Adrian as the coaching staff, you know, trying to be creative. What's the toughest part of being with the Irish senior team in this, in this current form of the Eurobasket and so many guys playing professionally? Is it the lack of time you have with one another or what, what's the toughest challenge for you as a coaching staff? Um, so, like, after we played Austria last time, they had Jacob Podol, you know, the NBA player who played for Spurs. Um, I was talking to him after the game, and I was like, you know, what's it like bringing an NBA guy into the fold? And he said, you know, what you'll learn is that the higher level of player you bring in, the quicker they can adjust and and get what you're doing. You know what I mean? So the fact that we have so many pros now, like even though we don't have many time, like when you bring Ty Woe and you bring Sean and Jordan and John and, you know, even when we bring Aiden, who's not a professional yet, but he's living kind of a professional life in college and CJ, when you bring those guys in to your fold, like they're going to pick things up really, really quickly. So that wasn't actually as hard as uh, as as you'd think it would be, you know, because smart players, good players like are usually smarter players and they're going to pick things up quickly. I think um, what was the hardest part? Like, obviously, the budget, like the budget from basketball, like we don't have a lot of money. We don't have a ton of money. So, uh, you know, we don't get to to have a two week training camp in June, even though everybody is kind of home and around like, you know, and some guys are working kind of nine to five. So it's like. You know, you can't just take Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday off and have a training camp in UL if we wanted to, you know. So I think just the fact that uh, we're not a fully professional outfit is is hard. And it's still like, you know, fair play to our guys who who still make the effort and we still are competing and we still had a chance to win almost every game that we played in those in those three windows, you know. 
I know you hate the word potential, but mm-hmm. uh, there's so much young players, let's say, we've so much youth coming up that, yeah. you know, someone made a comment that it is probably going to be a reality at some point when we have a fully professional, you know, 12-man squad for the Irish team. When do you think that is going to happen, if it does happen, in your opinion? Um, I mean, I think it's going to happen within the next 10 years, maybe five years even, because, uh, you know, you already see it now. Like, we have so many kind of, 18 to 23 year olds who are off in college and if they want there is an opportunity for them to make money playing basketball and it's not for everybody like the life is hard you know and, and some um and I think Colin O'Reilly said this in uh in one of his clinics during the lockdowns that I remember that uh you don't have to be paid to be a professional you know what I mean so like having professionalism is uh is not necessarily the amount of money you get paid. And and sometimes when you go and become a professional, like you're not making much money. Um, and, and, you know, it's just the way you carry yourself and, and the dedication you have to the craft is what actually makes you a professional. So I think a lot of these kids that we have that are in college now, or um, even the young guys who are still playing in, in Ireland in the Super League, they have a lot of potential, obviously, and they have a chance to really um, become craftsmen of this game. So if they choose to go that route and, and make basketball kind of one of their full-time things, then, uh, yeah, the next five years is, is, is exciting, man. Like, you know, like I, I went to the Eurobasket yesterday and, and went to see Luca play. And, like, I, I made a post on Instagram about this. And all I kept thinking all day was, like, how do we get here? How do we get here? Like, how can we be here one day? Um, and I don't think it's as far-fetched as, as, as a lot of people do think. Because, you know, Slovenia's first Eurobasket appearance they did a video tribute yesterday was in 1993 and that's not that long ago you know so uh you know so maybe when i'm when i'm 55 or 60 um i'll be you know in the crowd at at ireland in the eurobasket and they'll say you know ireland's first appearance was in you know 2032 in the eurobasket and now you know slovenia actually won the eurobasket a few years ago you know so um you know so like the writing's on the wall and we've seen smaller countries do do great things in basketball so like we're we're not that far away mm-hmm. i'm gonna tailor this question a little bit without putting the word money in as the answer what do we need to do to get there um because obviously like we don't have money to put in so we can't offer that as a solution yeah. but yeah. from what you've seen with players with clubs with parents with with anybody involved in the community in the community how do you make the next step to get to your basket uh, so I think the first step is is obviously our domestic league has to continue getting better. And it is getting better. It's becoming more professional. And like I said, professional, it doesn't just mean like professional in the sense that we have more money in the league, but it's professional in that like now we have Joy, Joy Mo. What is it? Joy Mo? Joy Mo, yeah. Joy yeah. Mo is, uh, you know, they're going to be filming every game. So when I first came here, trying to get film on an opposing team was like gold. Like, you know what I mean? Every coach is holding their games hostage, don't want to share anything. So now the fact that every game is being streamed and, um, you know, everybody has a fair chance to be scouted, like that's making the league more professional right away. Like we have so many Europeans and Americans coming in the league that should be lifting the level of our Irish players. Um, So that's making the league more professional. So as we continue to keep doing that, um, it's going to trickle down. So now in order to be an Irish player that plays in the Super League, um, you got to be at a certain level. You know, so so where does that trickle down? So now it's like as underage coaches, as an under 14 coach, like what you do matters a little bit more because like the the habits that you're teaching these under 14 kids is going to become what they do under 18s, under 20s. And it might 
like either keep them or propel them into being, you know, super league and domestic level players, you know what I mean? At, in our, in our top league. Um, so it starts at the top with our super league teams. And then obviously our grassroots, we have to just continue um, coaching education, which I think is basketball Ireland is, is getting a lot better at. And, you know, just teaching all these, these volunteer coaches, how to um, develop players in a little bit of time that we have, you know, it's just a constant, like, it's a constant cycle of, of trying to turn players out and, 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 and teach them personal accountability to, to go and work on their craft themselves, you know? Something that's probably more of a Gaelic football thing now is they have these kind of, obviously there's underage academies, there's, you know, 14, 15, up to kind of 20s, but from 20s and beyond, is there scope to have an under 23 academy, you know, that kind of B, t- B senior team that you have guys coming together and training and being part of that high, high level environment yeah. uh, away from their Super League team? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would love it. Like, I think, you know, like I said, we have so many under 18 to 23 year old kids now. And it's like, what do they do? Like, if you don't make the senior team, if you're too old for the under 20s, like, what do you do if you're a high level kid here? So, like, if we had kind of an under 23 team and uh, if anybody from the EPC is listening, I would love for us to have an under 23 team that always entered the small countries. Um, and basketball Ireland, shout out, shout out. Um, so if anybody's listening, I hope I hope they get that. And I know Adrian Fulton, who's on the EPC, has has you know we've we've kind of had talks about this as well. Is that there is a window there where our you know elite kids are are kind of being lost, um, and and we don't want to lose them, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something I probably observed a little bit from Gaelic football. They're kind of having that second string, even even if they never play in the. Uh, yeah, uh, the small countries just being able to come together as a group maybe at yeah. Christmas or during the summer doesn't even have to be once a week just kind of mm-hmm. getting together and getting that mindset even of competing yeah. against one yeah. another yeah that's it's amazing it's a it's a great insight a great thing that you just said there and it's uh it's something that it's gonna become more of a problem as we send more and more kids to the states and you know kids are going over to Europe and playing at young ages now um so I, I just don't want to lose touch with these kids because they're just, they're everything. Like maybe two or three of them might become senior internationals. Um, but you don't want to lose that one or two because they weren't an international at age 21, but by the age of 26, you know, they're one of the best players in the country, you know, that you don't want them to fall down the cracks, fall through the cracks, you know? Mm-hmm. But for your career, obviously you retired this year. I put up that question box and got a couple of questions saying, are you actually retiring? And I did ask you that the other week as well. Um, but what kept you in the game for so long, you know, mentally and you know being able to perform at, at the level you were even just last season yeah I love it I love it like I, I genuinely love it like you know like and I think if you are around me in the gym like even if you don't know me within the first 30 minutes you're like yo this dude really really loves it and you know it doesn't matter like I could go watch an under 11 girls game or I could you know perform in a Super League Cup final and my like my passion for the game is the same you know what I mean so it was never um it was never work it was never hard work and I think uh also you know my my uh my daughter's mother you know my ex-wife now she she was just she was a rock man she allowed me to do it like she allowed me to go to all the trainings in Dublin she allowed me to be two hours early every game um she just gave me an avenue where even in my older years and when I had to do extra to to prepare myself to be able to play um, she just she just gave me the opportunity to do that. And I'm, I'll always be thankful for that, you know, but uh, I could play forever, like the way that I, I keep myself in shape and just being around the game anyway, because I'm a trainer and a coach. Like I'm always going to be in the gym. 
And because I'm in the gym, like my mentality was always to be there early. So if I'm going to be there early for practice, like that 30 minutes, I'm probably just going to shoot or do some push-ups or something. You know what I mean? Like I, like I could play this year. Like, like I don't like the word retired. You know what I mean? Like I just, I'm not playing. I'm not playing, but I'm not, you know, retired is like shit when you're like 65 and you know what I mean? 65 is young. That's young. Yeah. But I'm just saying like, you're just, you're ready to have your grandkids sitting on your lap. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like I'm, not playing because I want I want to to be there more for the players that I'm trying to progress to the next level. And like I was taking minutes away from, you know, young professionals who are coming and trying to to keep their career going. Like, what's the point of me um, sharing time with another 24 year old American and my old ass is on the court where he's trying to get stats and trying to progress to the next league? Like, nah, bro, go go get your money. Go get your go get your numbers up. Go get us a cup. You know what I mean? Like. Like, that's not, that's not why, like, I want to, I want to help the next generation get to the next level. I don't want to harness anybody from doing that. So if I felt like I was harnessing somebody, you know, it was my time to step away. It's, it's not because I'm old. It's not because, you know, I don't want to play anymore. I'm not retired, you know? That's actually something you've kind of touched on. I uh, asked uh, Tim Rice about this, um, about the Super League and the rule with the Americans. Mm-hmm. No brainer to to remove that rule of one player, one American on the court, in your opinion? Yeah, bro. Let, let people rock. Like I've been here for, I've been here for 16 years, 15 years. Like why, like, why am I sharing time? Like, you know what I mean? Like last year when I was playing, if I'm playing 15 minutes a game because I'm almost 40 years old and the younger guys are better and I can't perform like fair, like don't say because like, you know, because I'm, I've almost been here as long as some of the kids who were playing super league last year which is freaking scary. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like we had kids in the league who are like 18. Then I've been here 16 years. You was two when I got here. Right. But <laughs> so, uh, so like, I just, I just think, you know, if, if teams can afford it and, and teams can bring Americans over or, or, or Europeans over or whatever, like, you know, take away, take away that, that rule and, and just let people rock. You know what I mean? Like, because people are getting around it anyway. Like instead of having two Americans on the floor, teams might have four Europeans, and now you have one Irish player who's playing. So it's not like the two American rule is to to make Irish players better. Like, like what is what is it there for? You know? Yeah, I, I put it into context. I think you were talking about it when you mentioned obviously Michael Bonaparte. He could have played for Ireland, but he would still count as American. And you could have gone to Spain with your marriage license mm-hmm. and would have counted as Irish, but in here, you are still an American. Yeah. But Will Hanley, who played for Ireland for these windows for us, like if he came over here to play, he'd be an American. Yeah. Like it's, it's crazy. It's nuts. But any other country, like the reason that he got to progress in uh, in European basketball so a little bit easier was because he had his Irish passport. So he counts as a European, you know? So like it's nuts. It's nuts. I'm going to throw a few, we're obviously going to do the sideline seven, but I'm going to throw another few kind of random questions at you. Yeah. Um, a lot of younger players, obviously, are going to be listening because they love your page and stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, best advice for developing confidence? Um, reps. Reps develop confidence. You know, like reps, reps, rep, rep it over and over. Even when you're missing, even when people say you can't do certain things, like rep it, work on your weakness until it's, it's not so much a weakness anymore. Okay, very good. What's the best advice you've been given either from a coach or from a player teammate? Um, best advice I've been given. Best advice I've been given. That's a hard one. I've been given some gems. Um, 
I think the best advice that I was given was from my great grandfather. This is not from anybody, but he, he told me to, if I was working a job, getting paid $5 an hour, um, work it as if you're getting paid $10 an hour. Right. So work so hard that either when you get a raise, you know, you won't have to increase your work level because you've already been working to that level. Or when you leave, they will then miss you when they try to replace you with a $5 an hour person. That's the best advice I've gotten. What's the biggest lesson you've learned from sport? Uh, is that you are replaceable. Like that, 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 like, so, and I think um, this is funny because I went to Eurobasket yesterday to see Slovenia and Lithuania play. And there was about 13,000 people there, I'd say. And I was just one of 13,000 people there who love basketball. You know what I mean? And it had nothing to do with playing. And then obviously like there's, there's these players who were playing at this high level, but like, like every, there's just so much basketball is such a big thing and that you were just a little part of that. You know what I mean? Like you are always replaceable. So I think our goal with, within this game is just to try to uh, carve a little tiny dent in it. You know what I mean? Like that somebody might remember me a little bit or somebody might try to emulate something that I did. Um, and, and it's just trying to survive in this game. And it's like, you know, that's, yeah, that's the, that's the biggest lesson that I've taken from this. And I think that can be applied to anything, like no matter what relationship you're in, um, there's somebody that can take your place if you don't do your job, you know? So I think basketball's taught me that more than anything. Brilliant. Uh, was your ability down to more work, work ethic or talent for you, Puff? Uh, it, it has to be work ethic. Like talent, I was just a short little pudgy kid who couldn't really jump that high. And I became a, uh, you know, a pretty strong, still short, but still pretty strong, fast, and, and you know, could hold his own with, with anybody in the world. So that was all just because I worked at it and I loved it. Uh, if you could li- relive any moment of your career, what would it be? Um, huh. I don't know. I, I, like, I can't really, like, all of it, man. All of it. Like, everything. Like, even the the getting fired and and the bad parts and not playing in college and the heartbreak, um, it, it formed who I was. So I think I think the best moment that I've ever had was winning the national cup in 2020 and being able to have both my girls in my arms. I think that's the most powerful sports moment I've ever had because because my babies were there with me. You know, uh, if I were to go back and even go to kind of your Davidson years and you know with Michael Bree and Connor Grace and. And kind of go back to that time and say, well, you're going to you know, have a professional career, but come to Ireland and impact Irish basketball. What would you have said to me? I've been like, nah, give me my money back. You're you're a crap. Uh, <laughs> you're a crap fortune teller. <laughs> <laughs> nah, you're not you're not reading. That's the wrong line on my poem. You're reading right there. <laughs> Um, a good question in actually from Barry Lynch. Um, the season's obviously starting soon. How are you finding it? We're not mentioning the word retire. We're just saying uh, <laughs> not playing. Uh, and I can just see already people listening that are like, oh my God, he's leaving room to come back and, and kind of <laughs> not actually officially retired. Um, I, I'm finding it like, to be honest, I'm finding it really, really tough. Um, just not having the, uh, just not having the guys around, just the, the, you know, and, and I've, I've complained so much to people who are close to me about the traveling up and back to Dublin for these last six years. And it's just taking its toll on my body, 
uh, took its toll on my on my relationships, on on being there for my girls. But uh, like just getting there and, and even when guys were tired from work, coming into practice, just being that positive influence. And even though I was tired as well, just just knowing that I could uplift guys to to want to do this thing a little bit more and at a higher level, like it just, you know, it was it was a motivating factor for me, you know, and, and I miss that. I miss, uh, you know, talking crap in the locker in the changing room after games or before games or, you know, making fun of Jason for everything um and just just everything that comes with the camaraderie of being a part of a team um yeah i miss it it's really hard like the hardness of the 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 hard part of the preseason and you know the running and the conditioning stuff that you don't want to do and you know it's just a means of getting ready for for this long season that's going to tire your body out even more um i miss it i miss all of it man yeah it's really hard really hard what team are you most excited to watch this year uh super league um well my heart is is just temple oak i'm just uh you know i, I just see red when i open my eyes because they they've given me so much over the years so i want to see how they're going to progress now that we kind of like jason is gone and i'm gone and uh steve james is not playing there this year so they've lost a lot as far as kind of senior senior veteran leadership you know so i just want to see how how they're going to bounce back or respond to that but Obviously, the team that everybody is wondering about is Neptune. I just want to see what the hell Jordan's going to be like in the league and, you know, how Colin's going to manage that animal. I'm <laughs> uh, going to put you on the spot with this one. I've started the One to Watch series where we give a kind of bit of a spotlight to uh, younger athletes in all sports. I'm going to put you on the spot. I want a few names. Who are the up-and-coming stars of Irish basketball we need to keep an eye on? Um, Just any age? Any age. Any age. Uh... I mean, it's easy if I just name like the the people who are already on Irish teams. I don't want to do that. So uh, I don't know. I think maybe I'm a little biased, but there's this 13 year old girl in Kilkenny. Uh, that's a freaking killer, yo. She's a three x three champ. She's back a to back killer. to back. Listen, listen, listen. Everybody's like, "Oh, Caitlin reminds me of you when they play," and it's like the biggest compliment, but it's the biggest cap ever. She's nothing like me. She is so much like tenacious. She's tenacious like me, and she plays hard, but like. She's just got her own swag, man. Like Caitlin, Kate, sh- I, 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 I don't ask me that question because she's coming of age, and I don't want to, you know what I mean. I don't want to be giving that propaganda for for my own daughter. But she's my favorite player to watch ever. Love it. We're gonna have to get design more t-shirts for her because she's running out of uh, yeah, three, yeah. three every t-shirts. Color, every color, <laughs> every color. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Uh, final question for me on sideline seven. We've nearly done a sideline seven before the actual sideline yeah. seven. Uh, what do you want to be remembered for in relation to Irish basketball? When you know, when the time comes where you, where you step away from the game completely, which I don't think will happen. Talking to you now, mm-hmm. uh, what do you want to be remembered for when people uh, say the name Puff Summers in the Irish basketball community? Um, I just I want people to to think that he uh, he he lit the room up. Like he lit the inner, the room up with, with positive energy and he made people want to be in the gym and that's it. And if I can make people want to be in the gym, then you create that, uh, that self accountability that we kind of talked about a little bit earlier. And, you know, if you don't remember me for anything else, just remember me for, you know, showing up every day and, and wanting to want to be better every day. And that's it. We are finally going to move on to the Sideline 7, brought to you by RTP Physio, founded by chartered physiotherapist Tony Fox and Thomas Dibley. They are based in St. Jude's J.A. Club in Temple Oak, Dublin. 
RTPs specialise in physiotherapy, return to play, physical health and performance. You can visit rtp.physio for more. Puff, you've listened to the podcast. I'm pretty. I'm expecting some pretty spectacular uh, answers here. Question one, <laughs> out of all the quotes we've already mentioned, what is your favourite one? My favourite quote, my favourite quote, favourite quote. Favorite, man, there's so many quotes. Um, some people get by while others get better. Love it. Who said that? Uh, I think Coach McKillop is everything I said. Every quote I know is from Coach McKillop because he used to speak in quotes. He used to speak in, in sound bites. But uh, yeah, he, he said that and I've kind of coined the phrase. So yeah, that's my favorite quote ever. Brilliant. Uh, best sporting event you've been to and you pick one as a fan and one as a player. Um, as a player, it was playing in Cameron Stadium um, against Duke. Well, that that's probably up there with we actually beat North Carolina my freshman year we beat wow. um in the dean dome and when you go in the dean like cameron is just a little like if you've ever been to cameron if anybody's ever been to cameron cameron is not as daunting as it looks like on tv like it's a small place um you know it's not this huge arena but when you go to the dean dome it's like so much carolina blue that you almost feel like dizzy seeing the carolina blue and then you walk in there and you see like michael jordan's jersey up on the on the thing and james worthy and it's just like yo what is this so uh, so that was that was pretty special. And I kind of grew up a Carolina kid. Like I love North Carolina kind of growing up, you know. So. Um, so, yeah, that was that was probably my favorite as a sporting event, as a player. And then as a spectator, um, I got to see Michael Jordan play for the Wizards, which was pretty cool. Um, just just seeing Jordan. And then like actually yesterday I got to see Luca play. And I got to get really close up to to see him working out. Like um, I say this to everybody, like my favorite part of being the Irish senior or the the assistant coach is just getting to see people come in and during the warmups, how they, what they do, like what their routine is. So seeing Luca come out and just come out and do his little, you know, dynamic stretching routine and go out and just shoot his step backs and do the same thing we see him do on a nightly basis, just seeing a close up and, and being right beside that. Like it was pretty surreal yesterday. Wow. Speaking of uh, gyms and tough places to play, what was the toughest uh, gym or team against, team to play against in the Super League? Super League. Um, Mary, for sure. And when they played in Armour, that little orange-ass court, man, you can't, like, you can't, you don't even know what, what planet you're on, right? And then they always played the whitest of music to make you not get hyped in the warm-up. And I know it's on purpose. I know it had to be on purpose. Not one rap song. It was the worst place I ever played. I was so happy when they moved to Kingfisher. And then they moved to Kingfisher last year and they still kicked our ass. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought you would have said uh, Tralee because the atmosphere. Because uh, this season I have to go down and just see what it's like. What, nah, not- Tralee is cool to play in. Tralee, that's fun because it's all fans. They just, you know what I mean? Like if you break somebody's ankles, even from the opposing team, they still gonna be like, ooh, like that's love. That's fun. Marie, where there's only like 50 people there. And they ready to chop your head off? Like, that's hard. <laughs> Question three, what's been the biggest setback or challenge so in your career? And how did you react to it? Um, Biggest setback or challenge? I think, okay, so when I was in seventh grade, I was like the man. I was like the man. Like, I, like when we played the youth league in sixth grade, this is when I'm like 11, 12, I averaged like 30 points a game. So going into middle school, which is like the equivalent of first year here, um, it's like seventh and eighth graders play together on the school team. And so I was a lock and everybody was like, oh, we can't wait to see you play Puff. And uh, and I tried out for the team, did my thing. 
And this is like the first time when the names are like up on the list in front of the whole school and I go to it and I'm not on the final list. And it was like so crushing, man. It was like, <laughs> that was the hardest thing I ever had to go through was that all the girls were there looking at it, like seeing what boys were on the list and I wasn't on the joint. And I was just like, God, like, um, so yeah. So it was like, you know, if I'm really going to be a basketball player, like this is it, this is the turning point. So that was, yeah, that was the roughest part of my, sporting career ever I think brilliant uh, what's been your biggest achievement uh, on or off the court um my biggest achievement my biggest achievement hey um to be seen man I don't I don't think it's happened yet I don't think it's happened yet I think uh I'm gonna get to work with a lot of special special players and I've, I've had so many achievements there I think my personal achievements like any national cups or awards that I've won or golden balls that I've won it's it's like means nothing in comparison to um, getting like Lucy Coogan to give me her, her national team Jersey after she makes that or seeing Jack Keogh hit a three, a step back three that I know we've worked on um, a thousand times, you know what I mean? Or, or seeing these kids like seeing Ash Morin uh, just strap somebody full court um, knowing that like, we've had these, these, these workouts where I'm just making her dog somebody out, you know what I mean? And, and not saying that I was the reason for that success, but knowing that I had a hand in that success, it means a lot more to me than, uh, than any other things that I've done myself, you know? Brilliant. Uh, question five, um, looking back, what advice would you give your 18 year old self? Um, do more fun stuff, man. Like, like sometimes it's okay to go to that party. Sometimes it's okay to go to the family birthday um sometimes it's okay to escort your wife to a wedding um so so do that when you go to these countries go and see the sights don't just lock yourself in the gym like human man go and be a that uh that is cultured and and that is not just a basketball player for sure go and go and experience life a little bit more advice uh question six who would be your dream dinner guest and why and i have to change the question because everyone just gives me multiple people so if you want just throw in as many as you want Nah, my uh kobe would be mine kobe would be mine but and and i feel like i've actually been to dinner with kobe because i've listened to every interview i've heard every every perspective that he ever attacked anything whatever talked about but um i just want to talk about like you know, what happens when you're, when your family feels so isolated that, you know, like, how did you keep continue just going to the gym? Like, what was it? I just, I want to pick his brain on. And then after, after he left basketball, like, how did it seem so easy for him? Like, it was all you knew from, from such a young age. Like, how did you do it so seamlessly? Like, I, it would definitely be Kobe. Before I let you go, if your life was a book, what chapter would this be called? This would be called, uh, um, this will be called um, Leveling Up. Okay. Leveling so we up. haven't seen anything yet, is it? Nah, no, no, no. Puff as a player is going to be faint in comparison to whatever else I end up being, you know, I think. And, and I miss it. And I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm trying to progress and, and get away from just being Puff as the basketball player. And that's very hard because that's been, that's come to characterize who I was for the last you know, 25, 26 years of my life, you know? So, uh, so now it's kind of trying to take all the things that I've learned and lessons I've learned from basketball and, and pushing me to a new era. And it's going to be involved with basketball, but it just won't be as a player. So. Okay. Very good. If there's, if there's anyone listening that wants to reach out or get a workout in, what's the best, what's the best place to find you? 
Um, well, I'm terrible at returning calls, so don't don't call my phone or text my phone. But like Instagram, I'm, I'm on Instagram a lot. So if you just go to at why not me five, I will try my best. There's no promises because I'm terrible. I am. And I admit it. And I'm sorry. Um, you know, Orla's probably invited me to the podcast 30 times. I probably missed a message. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. But hit me on Instagram and I'll try to get back to you. And if I can't work you out because of the scheduling or whatever, I'll work out something that I can help you get better for sure. That's a promise. I'll I'll, I'll promise to that. OK, brilliant. Puff, thanks for coming on again and best of luck uh, with everything going forward. Yeah. Thank you so much. Brother. Massive thank you to Puff for joining me on the podcast today. Be sure to let us both know if you got something from the episode. I'll be sure to leave all of his social media links in the description box below if you'd like to reach out to him about training or just a general basketball question. As always, if you are enjoying the episodes, please do leave a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as it does help the show grow. And don't forget to check out our Instagram page at the sideline now for more.